Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 23 and 42 through 58. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, 
and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Christ the Lord Church, are you still in your sins? Are you still in your sins? Are you still in your sins? Is our preaching in vain? Is our preaching in vain? No, because he is risen, amen? He is risen indeed. This is the confession of all believers. Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul says, I would remind you, Church of Corinth, of our confession. The gospel, what I preached to you, and you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as in first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The resurrection is the thing that all Christianity hinges upon. People have no problem believing that Jesus was a historical figure, that Jesus was a good moral teacher, and that he died on a cross. History tells us that, and people have no problem believing that. But the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is God Almighty, and salvation, life eternal, comes through nothing else but his saving work on the cross on our behalf. This is the thing that all Christianity hinges upon. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. There is no point in us showing up week after week to hear the preaching of God's word. There is no point in trying to live differently. It's just behavior modification. But because Christ has been raised from the dead, there is real life transformation for the people of God. Amen? You can walk in newness of life. Paul reminds us in 21 through 22, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. We're going to talk about the resurrection of the physical body here in a little bit. I could preach for like five hours because I'm really pumped up and excited. And you should be too. He says in verse 22, for as in Adam all die. You understand that, right? That, that the gospel is God created all things for his glory and man fell from that glory through sin, Adam and Eve. And we have inherited that curse from our first father, Adam. For as in Adam all die. 
But this is the good news of the gospel. So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. We're gonna see today, not just spiritually, but there is real abundant life that even goes beyond all of our wildest dreams. The title of this message is that they may have life and have it abundantly. That they may have life and have it abundantly. Mankind lives under the curse of sin. And sin leads to what? It leads to death. This is something that your kids need to be able to say right away to you when you say, kids, what does sin lead to? They need to say quickly, it leads to death. What are the wages of sin, kids? Death. It leads to death. We live in a culture that cultivates death. We had a heartbreaking reminder of this a few weeks ago in the shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. We see a a sobering reminder of how sin literally leads to death. But I want you to see the multi-layeredness, as it were, of, of sin, if layeredness is a word. The multi-layered nature of sin. Not only the taking of life, but the pure evil of a lie that an individual believed that they could become what they wanted to be defined by their own desires. That they could define, rather than the creator God, what gender is. And our culture celebrates this kind of evil and wonders then why it produces more evil and wonders why it produces death. It's asinine, it's insanity. You see, if you deny the existence of a creator God, then you think you are free to make up your own truth. So in an effort to find meaning, satisfaction, and happiness, People worship themselves, the creation literally mutilating its bodies in an effort to create something of meaning, worth, trying to find life in itself, but it always leads to death. Because when people try to deny the existence of a creator God, then they think they are free to define what that creation should look like. They are free to determine the definition of life. We've seen this in abortion. Just like Satan's lies and his questions to Eve, did God really say? Does life really begin at conception? Is it really a baby or is it just a clump of cells? When is it human? What is a human? What is love? Well, love is love. What is a woman? What is a man? The events in Nashville are inevitable when a culture elects somebody to the Supreme Court justice who, when asked to define what a woman is, says, I am not a biologist. You see, if you can't define what a woman is, then you can't define what it means to be human. And if you can't define what it means to be human, then you can't define what murder is. You see how multi-layered and how deep sin is? You see what a death Grip Satan, the father of lies, has on the people that are not in Christ of this world? Do you see the death grip that he had upon you before you were in Christ? Genesis 6, uh, 9, 6 says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, 
By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Doug Wilson says this, when we set up shop to define our own identity, all we do is define ourselves right out of existence. You cannot define yourself out of girlhood without at the end of the day defining yourself right out of humanity and over the lip of the abyss. The end of all of our striving and self-defining is to tumble headlong in the void. When you look around at the craziness in our world, the great problem is sin. That's the problem. And Christian, don't be shy in your workplaces, in your places of recreation, in everyone that you encounter to point out that fact. No, the problem is sin and it's multi-layered because death begets death and more death and more death and destruction. And the only one that has the answer to the problem of death is Jesus Christ. The only one. John 10, 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. And we see the evil one wreaking havoc right now in our culture, destroying it and delighting in death and desiring that those would die in this life and only find more death apart from Christ for all of eternity. That is his desire. And he comes saying, did God really say? Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you've been around Christ the Lord for a while, we've been going through Hebrews, and you remember a sermon back in Hebrews 2. It says that Jesus is the only one able to help those who are in the slavery to the fear of death. Humanity fears death. And if you are not in Christ, you should fear death. It is something to be greatly afraid of. But he goes on to say that because Jesus destroyed the power of death, Jesus is able to help those who are in the slavery to the fear of death. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that puts away sin and satisfies the righteous wrath of God. Jesus defeats Death, and we celebrated this a couple days ago on Good Friday. Jesus defeats death by dying. We'll talk about more of this in just a little bit. He took away the thing that gave the devil the power. Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and he set it aside, nailing it to his cross and he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus took the punishment that you deserved rightly. Why did you deserve it? Because there was a big record of debt against you. Rightfully belonging to you. This big folder of sins and iniquities that Satan held against you. And this is why he has the power of death. As the great accuser, he stands before God with the large folder of our sins and iniquities and says what? Guilty, guilty. And we have to say that is true. I am guilty, and the wages of sin is death. So sin 
is what gives death its power. So that big folder in the hands of the enemy is your death penalty. And apart from Christ, the only door open to you is hell and separation from God for all of eternity. But Jesus destroyed the power of death. Jesus came that you may have life. What does Colossians say? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against you with his legal demands. In his death, Jesus took the penalty for your sin. He took the wrath of God. Jesus took the big folder of debt out of the devil's hands, sprinkled it with his own blood, and nailed it to his cross and declared, paid in full. Amen? Paid in full. Now the devil is a defanged snake, a lion with no teeth, with no real power. Only a lie that we would believe. In our text here today, from 20 to 22, he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul said, this is our confession. This is our creed. He goes on to say in verses 5 to 7 that the resurrection is a historical fact. And we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but the resurrection is a historical fact. He, he gives a list of people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And a part of the resurrection record as a historical fact was that a lot of the people that he was writing here about seeing Jesus were still alive and he's telling people, you can go talk to them. Go talk to them. Charles Hodge says, there never was a historical event established on sure evidence than that of the resurrection of Christ. It is a historical fact. And I could talk a whole sermon on the reasons why it is a historical fact. But one of those evidences is, and this is what we're gonna spend our time on, it's not just a historical fact in the eyewitnesses and the, the, um, the surety of the New Testament documents and so on. But one of the greatest evidence for the resurrection of Christ was the transformation of the people that followed him. The transformation of the people that followed him. Peter, who denied Christ, all of a sudden stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches boldly that this Christ whom you have crucified, God has made him king, lord, ruler over all. Salvation is only found in him. The transformed lives of those who followed Jesus. The resurrection is a historical fact, but, but it is a supernatural thing, not just a natural thing, a supernatural thing. Salvation does not come from a convincing historical argument. You can't just compile all the evidence and say, okay, based on that evidence, now I will believe in Christ after I've done my work. Sure, you should study those things. You should study the accurate and very reliable sources. The resurrection is a historical fact, but the thing that saves is grace and faith in Christ alone. It's not a, a mental ascent. It's a heart transformation. And this is what Paul is saying from verses 8 to 11. He's saying, this is your creed. 
This is the confession. This is what you hold fast to. Christ died and he rose again. This is a real historical fact. Go talk to these people. They can tell you their own eyewitness accounts. But I'm going to tell you the convincing argument for the resurrection is the transformed life. And Paul says, now let me show you by my own testimony how this has worked. Verses 8 to 11, the resurrection radically transformed Paul's life. The grace of God not only changed his life, but gave all of his life its meaning and purpose. Verses 8 to 10, he says, after he gives the list of people you can go talk to, he says, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, but by grace, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is saying that though, um, though he was a, a blasphemer, though he tried to persecute the church, God's grace appeared to him and transformed him. By grace, I am what I am. Grace transforms the past. Sorry, Adam, I'm jumping all over the place. Grace transforms the past. Adam is such a blessing. Grace transforms the past. It redeems our past. Paul says that the resurrection of Christ is true because he was once a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, yet he says, by the grace of God, I am here now what I am. I can't even believe it. By the grace of God, I am now a preacher of the gospel that I sought to destroy. He's saying here, look, you are not too far gone. God came into the world to save sinners. But Paul said, who I am the foremost, the chief. And if you do not think that you are a sinner, Christ cannot help you. Because he came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, when you realize that you are a sinner, you are in a great place to receive his grace. God's grace is so powerful that it can save even the vilest of sinners. You are not too far gone, friend. You are not too sinful. You are not beyond his saving. You have may destroyed your life, but by God's grace, it can be restored. You may have burnt your bridges and your relationships and strained them and say, this is hopeless, but there is hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul unpacks this further, this idea in Galatians 1.15, that God not only saved him, but by grace has put everything together in his life to bring it to meaning. He says, when, in, in Galatians 1, 15 through 16, he says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach to him, preach him to the Gentiles. And then he follows that up in 1 Timothy 1 by saying, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed to me with the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. This saying is trustworthy and full, fully deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost. God predestined him before the foundations of the world and set his love upon him. And on the Damascus road, converted him. What of the timing of Paul's conversion? Like, what about all the horrible things that Paul did? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, I really wish I would have become a believer sooner because he did a lot of horrible things. Like, what if Paul would have become a believer a lot sooner? Maybe the church would have got a little bit of a jump start, right? 
Paul wouldn't have been persecuting them so much. But no, God's timing, even in his saving grace and, and, and bringing salvation to you and the quickening of the spirit within you, and the timing of your salvation is perfect. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 1.16, but I receive mercy for this reason. He's like, what about before the foundations of the world, God set his love on me, and then here's my conversion at Damascus Road. What about all this in between? What about all this mess? Why, why did I have to go through that? He answers that question. For this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That is to say, if God can save that guy, he can save anybody. If he can save that guy, he can save me. Number two, grace empowers good works. Verse 10. Paul comes back to this truth at the end here of our text in 1 Corinthians. Verse 10, he says, And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Now, Paul knows something about work. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anybody could get to heaven by doing good works, it was him. All right? But he's already stated that that wasn't the case. That's not how you receive eternal life. No, it's through God's grace alone. He was the chief of sinners. So here's what he is saying, is that grace redeems our past. Number two, grace empowers good works. Grace empowers good works. He's saying that through faith in Christ that justifies us, that now this grace is the fuel that powers works of righteousness and holy living. This is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying that God's grace would have been in vain if it had not produced in him hard work to work out his salvation. Hard work in righteous living and holy living. Paul is not a poser. He's saying there's evidence for the resurrection of Jesus that the chief of sinners now by God's grace is empowered to outwork everyone. And that's of God's doing, he's saying. Grace does not replace work, it empowers work. The Greek word here for work is labor, hard work. And if you've been with us through Hebrews, you know something about this. We are to strive to enter God's rest, to work out our salvation, to run with patience the race that is set before us. Effort, real effort. It's grace that gives you power to make this effort. It takes effort to get up in the morning, to spend time in the scriptures, to love your spouse, to get up off the couch, to get on the floor to play with your kids, or to discipline them. It takes real effort to show hospitality. It takes real effort to lead your wife and children. It takes real effort to share the gospel with your neighbors. It takes real effort to be faithful to your church, to serve in children's ministry, or to lead a home group. It takes real effort, and grace empowers us to do good works. Those who are overflowing with God's grace outwork everybody in works of righteousness and holy living. It takes real effort, real effort. Now there are a few of you who are fearful about us preaching the hard work of righteous living. You had a bad experience from some legalistic people, so you're hesitant when people talk about holy and righteous living, and consequently that's why you don't read your Bible, because there's a lot to say about righteousness and holy living. I think a better word for hesitancy here is laziness, though. 
And a better definition for fear of legalism is a light view of sin. And I am not saying that we are saved by our works. I'm not saying that legalistic people are okay. They suck. I'm saying that grace does not replace work. It empowers it. You are saved. You are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. But the result of that justifying work of Christ is good works produced in you. The grace of God overflowing in righteous living. And those who would push back against this truth are proving that they do not understand grace. And the harder they push back against it, they are proving that they have not received saving grace. Grace empowers righteous living. It gives fuel to holy living. And those who are dominated by the grace of God will overflow in hard work, effort, labor, in righteousness. We've already said this, but Paul wants to make sure we understand this in the verse 10. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. And if we stop and look around, we know that we can't, by our own good works, justify ourselves. Like, when we walk in newness of life, resurrection power, you ever have people just look back at you and be like, that ain't you. Because <laughs> like, I know you. I know what a dirty little person you are, man. You're horrible. And the grace of God has overflowed in your life and transformed you and made you something brand new. And now you no longer work for, for sin and death, but you work for righteousness in life. This is the work of God within you. Now Paul changes his, his trajectory. And we don't have time to dive completely into all 58 verses of this text. So I had Sarah break it up. So he's saying, you've been saved by grace. We've established that. We know that. We must remind ourselves of that. The, the resurrection gives us real power to live in newness of life. But now there's this future grace. So grace transforms my past. Grace gives me fuel for the present. And now because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have received grace, God's unferited, unmerited favor, now that I can have this future grace. The hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And Paul now proves this and pushes towards this, not only by emphasizing that we can um, know that there is grace there for us tomorrow to walk in new life and holy living, but also to push us towards that day when all things will be restored. So there's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and now Paul is going to tie together the restoration of all things. The restoration of all things. The resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the body, he goes on to talk about from verses 12 to 34. Paul explains this seamless connection between the resurrection of Christ in the recent past for the people he's writing to, and the future resurrection of the believers on the final day. Christ's resurrection is the surety of the resurrection of all believers. Not just the transformation of our spiritual beings, but the transformations of our physical bodies as well. God is restoring all things to himself. This is that last part of the gospel story that oftentimes we don't think about. And I understand because it's at the end. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Restoration or consummation. This is what Paul is pushing people towards. 
There's grace to transform your past. There's grace now in the present. And there is a future grace that you can look forward to. There is a future hope that you must live in light of. This is this future reality, this forward-looking faith. And this is what undergirds us now in all that we do. The resurrection ensures our restoration. We must live in light of that reality now. From verses 42 to 49, Paul argues that because of the resurrection of Jesus, our future will see the restoration of all things in Christ. And this restoration will culminate in the resurrection of the believer's physical body. And this is significant because we believe that Jesus rose from the dead with a body, right? We believe in the visible um, return of Christ. We will see him, and he will rule and reign. Christ rose from the dead, and he had a resurrected body. He was not like Lazarus, who he rose from the dead, who then died again later, or the young boy who he rose from the dead, who died again later. He had a resurrected body. Those guys had revived bodies, resurrected body, meaning that he could walk through walls and eat fish. And, and, and this is what the believer looks forward to, the restoration of all things, the restoring of all things for God's glory. This is unique to the Christian faith, whereas other religions want to cast away completely the physical and say the physical is, is, is bad and dirty and we should throw it away. It's just spiritual. But God says, no, no the physical is important. We've been learning about that here at Christ the Lord. That, that what happens in our hearts should, should um, translate to our lives and the things that we touch and the things that we do and the work that we do, interactions with our children, everything we put our hand to for the glory of God. Christ replaces completely our wicked heart, our unrighteousness with his righteousness. And one day, though our earthly bodies will not be cast aside, but our earthly bodies will be restored to what they should have been. They will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and just as it were that, that, that our, our, in our sin we can't inherit the kingdom of God, so our, our earthly bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So Christ will restore them. He will restore them on the last day. Verse 49, just as we have uh, just as, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall also we bear the image of the man of heaven. It will be what it should have been without sin and all of its effects. Our bodies will not be cast away forever. This earth will not be cast away forever. It will be restored forever. And we will have resurrection bodies like our Lord. This is why the catechisms say this is the Heidelberg Catechism, and ask the question, what is our only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. In death, not just spiritually being with him, but also a day when our bodies will be raised and there will be a restoring of all things. In verses 58 now, 51 to 58, Paul talks about a mystery and a victory. And this is where we're going to try to land the plane, all right? It might come crashing down. We'll see. And either way, we'll get it on the ground eventually, all right? A mystery. Verses uh, 
50 through 53, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And if you're wondering, I told Pastor Russ, I said, we're going to get some questions in home group this week, like, how, okay, when the trumpet sounds, what about those people who were, like, eaten by fish, you know, or, like, what about all those saints, you know, during the Reformation, before the Reformation happened, they were taking the bones of saints everywhere, you know, like, what about those guys, how is it all going to happen? Paul tells us, it's a mystery, okay? If Christ can raise the dead, he can figure it out. So let's not spend too much time on that. That's, that he's going to raise you, that's, that, that's, a, that's not a mystery. It's going to happen. How it happens, Paul's like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. All right? It will happen. Don't spend too much time on it. Maybe a little time, cool, but not too much. That's not the point. Here is the point. You don't need to know that, but here's what you need to know. The mystery is not God will raise you, though. You will be raised. And every believer, dead and alive, will be given a heavenly body, a resurrected body when Christ returns. The only mystery is how it's going to happen. Paul does say, though, it's, it's going to happen in a moment. God will transform our earthly bodies into heavenly bodies in an instant, in a split second. It says the twinkling of an eye. This refers to like this rapid eye movement, this quick blink of time, speed, something quickly. When the trumpet blows at the end of time, this will take place. Same language in 1 Thessalonians by Paul. Same language by Jesus in Matthew 24. You will see the Son of Man coming. The angels sound the trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth. When the last trumpet sounds, God will transform the earthly bodies of believers, two groups, dead believers. God will restore dead believers and transform their earthly bodies into heavenly bodies and those who are still living. Those who are still living, God will transform the earthly bodies of believers who have not yet died into heavenly bodies. God will transform our perishable mortal bodies, whether dead or alive, into imperishable immortal bodies. Verses 53 to 54 uses this language of they must put on the root idea here is, is putting on clothing. You will put on, as it were, the, the likeness of your Savior Christ. You have been given his righteousness now, but one day you will be given his resurrected body. His resurrected body. It means that we have hope for the future. Ephesians uh, 2, 5 through 6, Paul says, Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So because of the resurrection of Christ, those who believe in him are given new spiritual life in this age. Okay? Stick with me. And we look forward to the events described here in 1 Corinthians 15. If you are in Christ, now 
you get to experience a little taste. God has allowed you even now to share in a measure of the authority that Christ has. You can enter into the throne room boldly, but one day you will actually be there. Man, wake up. One day you will actually be there and see him. One day you will actually rule and reign with him and be like him. Now Paul says, I want to describe to you what happens next after this transformation. This transformation is glorious, but what happens next? What's the significance of all this? And, and why should this matter to me now? He says, this is a great mystery. It's kind of happened like this. There's a trumpet. Christ is coming. It's going to happen like this. Dead believers, given new bodies. Current living believers, given new bodies, made like Christ, resurrection bodies. But here's the important thing. Here's the reason why. A great victory, a great mystery, great victory. Verses 54, 57. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when this happens... Christian, what you have to look forward to when all things are restored is the death of death. The complete annihilation of death. This is a great victory, Paul says. Jesus decisively defeated death at the cross. Remember Hebrews 2, 14? He, he can help those who are in fear of the power of death, you remember that? Should me shake your head, good. But then after God transforms the bodies of believers, Christ will finally, completely, and permanently defeat death for all time. Death itself will be dead. Death and all of its effects, all of its scars, all of its ruin and havoc, it will be rendered helpless. Revelation 21 says, it will be no more. The prophecies of Isaiah and Hosea will be fulfilled. Listen, Hosea 13, 14. God speaking, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, or the grave. I shall redeem them from death. O oh, death, where is your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Isaiah 25, 8 through 9, our response to this. And he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. How do I know this is true? Because the Lord has spoken in accordance with the scriptures, Paul reminds us. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, and we have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord, and we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And you gotta start that rejoicing and gladness right now. Because you are not a people to be pitied. You are not a people who are afraid of death. This is why churches have always had graveyards outside on their property. 
because we got the answer to it. We don't have to put them in big gated communities away. We don't want to think about it. That's what our culture is obsessed with life and health and afraid of death because they don't have the answer for it because they don't know what real life looks like. They only see death beginning death. And on that day, death will die because Christ died and rose again. All right, stick with me. Romans 5, 12 says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Hebrews 2, we've already mentioned, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he, Jesus, became likewise, himself partook of the same things. Jesus became flesh, but we celebrate Christmas. He put on human flesh, came down, walked among us, that through death, Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, we already talked about this. That is who? The devil. And deliver all those who were in the fear of death, who were in the fear of death and subject to lifelong slavery. So Jesus permanently defeats death by his death. How does that take place? We'll talk about that in a minute. Let me say something first about sin and the reason it has power. Paul says in verse 56 of our text. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is what? The law. The power of sin is the law. Sin could not seduce Adam and Eve until God issued his first law for them. The first law of you shall not eat in Genesis 2, right? Then all of a sudden, there's a temptation. That law is to energize sin by giving it this death-dealing power, Genesis 3. The pattern of law, sin, death begins in the Garden of Eden. Through the law, Romans 3.20, comes the knowledge of sin. Law enables sin to abound, Romans 5.20, 7, 5, and 13. Moreover, the law brings wrath, Romans 4.15. The letter kills, 2 Corinthians 3.6. The law is the ministry of death and the minister of condemnation, 2 Corinthians 3, 7, and 9. Charles Hodge says this, if there were no standard to which we are bound to be conformed, there can be no such thing as want for conformity. This is why Paul says in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we were condemned. Why? Because we could not keep the law. We who were once in slavery to sin, unable to keep the law, in slavery to the fear of death, are now, if we are in Christ, free from condemnation. And how? I'll say it again. Because Jesus defeated the devil. But how did he do that? How can one defeat death by dying? Peter tells us in his sermon in Acts, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands, he was killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing him from the pangs of death. Why? because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The reason that we celebrate the resurrection, the reason that Jesus came back from the dead, is because sin had no wages that he could not pay. So therefore, death had no 
power. On the cross, Jesus fully dies, no breath, no sign of life. He was buried, but because Jesus lived a sinless, sinless life, death could not hold him. The Spirit of God went into the tomb and told him to get up, and he began to breathe, and his heart began to pump blood through his veins, and he got up. And he was able to defeat the power of death because he kept the law. This is why he was the only fit sacrifice for sin, because the wages of sin is death, but he lived a sinless life, so he owed death nothing. All the Old Testament sacrifices, all the blood, all the death could never atone for the sins. Over and over and over and over and over we must sacrifice, but Christ Jesus, once and for all, paid the penalty. The resurrection of Jesus was God's sign that he, a holy God, was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus. This is why Paul says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection is how we know that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. The resurrection is proof that the cross of Christ was enough. If Jesus had not led a sinless life, then he would not have been raised from the dead. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, then he would have absolutely no help to offer you, and we would be a pitiful people. So lost in our sins, and our preaching, and our godly living, and this whole church thing would be foolishness and folly. But he bears the penalty of our sins, and because of his sinless life, he defangs death. God raised him from the grave. Narnia puts it this way, when Aslan comes back to life, when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Before we go any further, let me say this. You cannot justify yourself, friend. You can't. You can't add to the perfect work of Christ. And if you're trying to, you're wasting your time. In fact, it's blasphemy. Because you cannot add to it. Why can't you add to it? Because of the resurrection. God was satisfied. He would be going against his nature to say, well, let me add to the cross and accept offering for sin from you. There is no more offering for sin, Hebrews says. Because Jesus paid it in full and the resurrection is authenticating it. God is pleased and he accepts it. He will not accept your pitiful attempts to justify yourself because it would go against his nature. No, he is Satisfied by the work of his son. There is no more sacrifice for sin. He is satisfied with the cross of Christ, and you should be too. So, now we're starting to come down and land the plane a little bit. Lots of turbulence for some of you. Hang on. But in addition to defeating sin permanently, Christ permanently ensures for his people that now if they are in Christ... Now, if they are walking in resurrection life, that the law of God is no longer a death penalty, but the law of God is life-giving. So grace empowers us now to walk as Jesus walked. And this, this, this is not some abstract idea, a good vibes. Like, this is real power given to you because the Spirit of God dwells in the people of God. The resurrected Christ as ruling and reigning and there to intercede for us. By his life and death and resurrection, our Savior has conquered our enemies, and by his Spirit he has granted us to share in the victories of Christ, Sproul says. 
We have real resurrection power to walk in holiness and in righteousness. First John 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Hodge says, Satan, the great executioner of divine justice, has no longer the right or power to detain the people of Christ under the power of death. If therefore it be the law which gives sin its reality and strength, and if sin gives death its sting, he who satisfies the law destroys the strength of sin, and consequently the sting of death. It is thus that Christ deprives death of all power incurred upon his people. Death is for them disarmed and rendered as harmless as an infant because of the resurrection. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says two things to us here in light of the resurrection. In light of one day, all things will be restored because Christ has beaten death And if you are in Christ, death has no hold upon you. And what you have to look forward to is future grace where all things will come into focus when Christ returns again. He says, be steadfast, immovable. Be firmly, solidly planted in place. Stand firm in the faith, as Paul later commands. In uh, chapter 16, 13, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Why? Because you're not a people to be pitied. No, you are children of the most high God. So act like it. And some of that is acting like it in, in joyfulness and overflowing and thankfulness that comes out of your mouth and jovialness. And looking at all the crap in the world and saying, I know that God sits upon the throne and rules and reigns, therefore I will not fear the evil one. I will not fear the dark because Christ has defeated it. And now I can get to work. And when people say evil things about me, praise God, because I get a blessing in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you, and so they persecuted even our Lord. Remember, uh, uh, the Battle of the White City, Gandalf is standing at the gates and he, the, the trolls are trying to beat down the door. Lord of the Rings, for you horrible people who haven't read it, uh, pagans who haven't read it. Um, and they, they're really scared. And Gandalf says to them, he says, you are soldiers of Gondor. Whatever comes through those gates, you will stand your ground. And, the, and they rally. Same thing, friends. Death has been defeated, and one day God will completely wipe away all of its effects. So we can live in light of that reality now. You are children of the Most High God, children of the King. So whatever comes at you, you can stand your ground. This is what gives believers fearlessness in the face of physical death. You read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you see that people were killed. We're gonna gonna come to um, Hebrews 11 soon where it talks about some were torn asunder, thrown to lions, and all of them overcame by the blood of the lamb because of the resurrection, because they know this was not the end. This is what Bonhoeffer said when the Gestapo came to to take him away to execute him. He looked at his cellmates and he said, brothers, for me, now real life begins. This is the same as as two missionary couples, a, a husband and a wife were being led to their death in China, 
So people said to them, where are you going? And he turned around with a smile and said, we're going home. We're going home. This is the resurrection power that gives us fearlessness in the face of death that Horatio Spafford had, who lost his children, his daughters, in a shipwreck, and he stood on the deck of another ship when he came to that place. The captain went and got him and said, I thought you would want to come and see where your daughters died. And he stood there, and the words came to his mind, which he later penned, which is now the beloved hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And the world doesn't, can't fathom this. Why are these people, why are these people so fearless? Why are these people so joyful in the face of persecution? We don't know what to do with them. You put them in jail, they rejoice. You persecute them, they rejoice. They dance a jig. You kill them, they say, we get to be with Jesus. We don't know what to do with them. So go be a menace for the kingdom of God. Be fearless. Why are you so afraid of what your coworkers will think of you? Oh, I want to be relatable. You're just lazy and fearful and not very holy. What are they going to do to you? Kill you? What's the worst thing that could happen? To be absent from the body, Paul says, to be present with the Lord. And one day, all the whip marks on my back, he said, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. Like, literally, he had scars and bruises from the whiplash, from being stoned, from hunger. He knew the pain also internally of people abandoning him. All these things, and Paul says, one day, I'm going to get a resurrection body. And it's all not just going to make sense, but be worth it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. This is, this is, what, this is what Pastor Greg read this already from, from, uh, from Revelation 2, or Revelation 1, I'm sorry. John falls down, and when he sees the lamb, fell down at his feet and became like a man like dead. And then I heard him saying to me as he laid his right hand on me, fear not. I wonder if John thought, oh, I know who that is. I've felt that touch before. But here's what, here's what the lamb does not say. He does not say, man, you're doing a good job. Don't be afraid. Just keep going. Good vibes to you. He doesn't talk about John. He talks about himself. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace, he says, fear not. You're about to go through a lot more hardship, buddy. I wonder if John at times was like, I wish I was martyred like the rest of the guys because it really is hard continuing on. But God had more things for him to do. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. I'm the one who says, who dies and who lives, I am the one who holds those things in my hands. So therefore, in the face of death, be fearless. The Puritans had a, a habit of saying when they would bury their friends, we're planting them because there was going to be a resurrection. We're planting them. When I, when I preached funerals, and I preached a lot of them at Victory, I would take a handful of dirt and I would sprinkle it upon the casket and I would say ashes to ashes and dust to dust. In the hope, with hope in Christ, for a glorious resurrection of the body one day for those who were believers. For the Christian, you ever, when I was a kid, um, pastor's kid, you know, the pastor's kids in the room will understand this. Your dad talks a long time. You're late you know, getting home, 
like a couple of us were last Sunday, or I mean last Friday, good service, good Friday service. So when we were on our way home, I'd always fall asleep in the car. Fall asleep in the car, and I remember kind of being woken up a little bit. Dad would carry us into the house, you know, kind of, kind of wake up and fall back to sleep. And the next morning, you'd wake up in your bed. And for the Christian, then, death is simply falling asleep in your father's arms and waking up in your father's house. You don't have to be afraid. You're just falling asleep in dad's arms and wake up in dad's house. That's death for the Christian. So he says, be steadfast, be immovable. Second thing he says is be abounding. This literally means be outstanding. Be outstanding, be prominent, excel. We can endure and excel in our enduring for we know that the Lord has risen and that all of our work now, if, if there is a restoration coming that all of the work I do now is not meaningless but it matters. What does he say? It is not in vain. You ever feel like your work is in vain? I've shared the gospel with this person so many times in my family. Keep sharing it. Your work is not in vain. Well, I just keep, I'm just, you know, I feel like I'm just, I don't really know what I'm doing. It doesn't feel like I have a lot of value in being a, a homemaker and a mother and a wife because the world keeps telling me I gotta go out and be a boss lady and all this stuff. No, your work is valuable in the Lord. Therefore, do it with all your might. Well, I'm not really sure I like my job very much. Who cares about your job? If you don't like it, plow into the next acre and do something else, but whatever you do, do it for God's glory because it's not in vain. You promote for some other job to give yourself some kind of self-satisfaction or self-worth or a, a bigger paycheck, that's all gonna burn up. But you plow into the next acre for God's glory and whatever you do, it's not in vain. It's not in vain. So the only reason we have this surety is because the restoration of all things undergirds this and we live in light of that future reality. And we must always strive to excel. Listen, Paul, what did Paul say? I worked harder than any of them. May that be your anthem. By grace, that fuels good work, I worked harder than everybody. I leaned into the tape, I ran faster, I got up off the couch, I disciplined my kids, I had the hard conversation with my family. It's not in vain if it's for the glory of God and grounded in the word of God and his truth. This, this literally means your labor, it means regularly, Active work, or your occupation, or your task. Every task to the believer is sacred. There is none of this sacred, secular thing, right? For the Christian, it is all sacred. All for Christ, for all of life. Thank you, Ben. It, in the Reformation, it was, I don't have to be a priest. I'm a farmer, and I'm a Christian farmer. It is a sacred work that I put my hand to the plow to feed my family for the glory of God. For the Christian, it is sacred. Why? Because of the resurrection, because God is restoring all things, because it will last for eternity. It has value. Every task the believer puts his hand to has value and is sacred, whether it is the planting of a church or the leading of your wife and kids, or the building of your home or the submitting to your husband or feeding and clothing your people for the work of the ministry, whether it's that washing of that pot for the thousandth time, whether it's late night snuggles with your kids, it all has value because of the resurrection. Empowered by grace, we outwork all of them. 
and the preaching of sermons, and the pouring of concrete, and the holding of babies in the nurseries, and the plunging of toilets, and the studying of theology, and the changing of oil, and evangelism, and mowing the grass, and baking bread, and running for local office. It matters. It has value for the Christian. And do it with gusto. Do it with courage. For an audience of one, so that he may say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It all has meaning for the kingdom. Whether you're, for the Christian, whether you're baptizing somebody on Sunday morning or chucking water balloons at them at the local, at the local, uh, um, what's that thing we had? Block party. It has meaning for the kingdom. Well, I, I, I'm not a pastor, right? No, you are a priest of God who should be offering spiritual sacrifices to him in everything that you do. It has meaning. He's saying because of the resurrection, all these things that we do will last for eternity. They are not useless. They are not in vain. Three points of application. Did I lose you, Adam? No, he's good. Adam's like a ninja back there. So we just say amen. <laughs> awesome. Clay, you look sharp, dude. Men, you need to aspire to that look right there. I couldn't find my tie this morning, plus I sweat too much. Three points of application. Okay, what am I supposed to do with this, Pastor Jeff? This Seems kind of far out. <clears throat> Number one, affirm and celebrate the gospel. This is what we started with, verses 1 to 11. Most simply put, Jesus lived, he died, he rose again for sinners, and God will save everyone who turns from their sin and puts trust in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your confession. Affirm and celebrate the gospel. And change in diapers, preaching sermons, whatever you do, hold fast to the gospel. In life, in death, Christ died for sinners. Hold fast to that good news. Number two, affirm and celebrate that God will resurrect and transform the corpses of believers. 12 through 58, basically the whole chapter. Hodge says this, but Christ not only gives us victory through his justifying righteousness, but by his almighty power, he repairs all the evils which death had inflicted. He restores to us, he restores us to that state, and even more than that state from which sin had cast us down. He rescues our bodies from the grave and fashions them like unto his glorious body. He is restoring all things. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, 18, that there's this future glory. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. <clears throat> Your suffering and pain and sorrow and the, and the scars that Paul received in his body, they were not meaningless. It was doing something. It was, it was storing up for him this future weight of glory. On that day, we will see him. Listen. And we will be like him. All the pain, sorrow, and suffering that we have endured in this life will be over. My mother will no longer have multiple sclerosis. She won't hobble around. No, she'll be able to walk strong and firm, and her broken body won't have the effects of sin upon it. My wife will no longer have SI joint dysfunction. Pastor Rusty will be able to hear. Exactly. I know he's going to joke about it, though. Be like, hey, Russ. And he's going to be like, 
what? I'm like, God, don't do that. Don't you do that to us. Slide on. We'll be reunited. I'll be reunited with the two kids that I lost. The Cornette family will be what it should have been, what it could have been. It was not for the effects of sin. It'll be restored. When our faith becomes sight, we will be like Jesus. We will forever have his body. And what a beautiful thing. The Philippians 3 talks about the humility of Christ. Did you know this, that when Jesus put on human flesh, in that moment, he, he decided for all of eternity to, to have that resurrection body that he was going to come back with. For all of eternity, Jesus is the God-man. For all of eternity, what, what, love is, what wondrous love is this? That he would do that. For, not just for us, but for the glory of his Father. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. We will be like him. We will have that resurrected body. Our bodies will be what they should have been without the effects of the fall, without the effects of sin. At first, the disciples didn't recognize Jesus in his resurrection body. They were like, you don't quite recognize him. And I think, I really do think that this is, a, we'll, it'll be a little bit like this when we see each other in heaven. Like I, always see, like I said about my mom, I will see my mom without, without multiple sclerosis. We will also see each other, not just without the, the effects of sin upon our bodies, we will see each other without the effects of sin that we walked in. We will see what we should have been. And there will be this, I think there will be this like, realization of, oh, I, I always knew this was you. I got glimpses of it in this life. We see it in the church. We see it in our family. We see it as we put our hand to the plow. But one day, it will be realized. When people walk up to us and we say, Wow, I always knew this is what you should have been. You will see each other without the effects of sin. All the scars forever gone, except for those scars in the hands of our Savior. To forever remind us why we are there. Only the scars of our Savior. We will see each other without the effects of this sin on our life. Not only will all the effects of sin be gone, listen, but everything, when, when our faith becomes sight and when we see our Savior, it will all make sense. And, and this is what we started with. Paul says, remember my, uh, I was predestined before the foundations of the world, and then my conversion was actually Damascus Road? What about all that? Well, he said, well, that's, what I, what I understand of that in this life was that's so that others would look and say, if God can save him, he can save me. But there's more to be understood there when I get to heaven. And what about all the other stuff? What about people who abandoned him? What about people who, who, um, who persecuted him? What about it seems like his untimely death? Like, man, Paul could have done a lot more things for the glory of God. What about when he stood there and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen? All those things will, will make sense in that moment. And not make sense as in like um, heaven will be a compensation for all this life. Hear me. Heaven is not a compensation for all of the hardship that we face here. No. Heaven is the icing on the cake. Christ Jesus is our reward. All right? Christ is our reward. And when we see him, that is the thing that we will know. Even though we didn't realize it fully, we feel it now, but we will realize how much we long to be with him. Because we were made to be with him. And on that day... When he makes all things new, we will get what we always desired. We will get to be with God himself. 
When I say that things will make sense, listen, I mean as you look in the eyes of your Savior, you will see everything that you have faced in this life as a part of what God used for your sanctification. You will see these things as the means of your salvation. You will see broken relationships and abandonment and people speaking evil you and cancer and infertility and untimely deaths and hearing loss and Down syndrome and Alzheimer's. All these things will come into focus when you see Jesus and they will make sense and you will see God's purpose in them as he brought you to himself. Being a pastor is hard sometimes. Y'all are pretty good, but other times with other people it's not so easy. And I think often, like, man, I could do something else. But I really do think this. I've told, told Brother this before, but other pastors say this too. Like, if I wasn't a pastor, I'm not sure that I would go to church. You're like, what? If God hadn't called me into this work, I'm not sure if I would persevere as much. Now, that seems like a hypocritical thing to say, but what I'm saying is God uses all things. He uses hearing loss for sanctification to make us more like Christ. He uses infertility as a sanctification to make us more like Christ so that we would, in this life, become more and more like him in one day, this hope that we would be like him fully. These are the tools that God used to bring us to himself. Even our sinfulness, we will see how God used all that time between the predestination and the Damascus Road, all that crap. We will see how God even uses our sin to bring that, that, that out of those ashes, beauty. And on that day, we will not just say, oh, it makes sense. You won't just say, oh, that makes sense, and heaven is a compensation. You will look back and you will say this, it is perfect. It is beautiful. I wouldn't have done anything different. And then we will spend the rest of eternity marveling at this mystery, Paul says in Ephesians. We will spend the rest of eternity saying, worthy is the lamb, what a beautiful story you have written. And it's gonna take all of eternity to give him praise and glory and honor that he deserves, forever glorifying the author and the finisher of our faith. In the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia, the unicorn fledged when he comes home to Aslan's land. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. Come further up and come further in. Number three, and we end with this. Behave now in light of the future. Behave now in light of the resurrection and restoration of all things. You don't have to wait. This means that that the things that you suffer physically in your body, you know that those things one day, even though you don't have any diagnosis for it and sure you're not understand what's happening right now in all of its uh, facets, but one day you will understand. All you know right now is that God knows the end from the beginning and he does all things well. So I can go out with fearlessness and turn the world upside down for Christ. Jesus said to Martha when she greeted him at the death of her brother, John 11, 26 to, 25 to 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So the answer is the same for you. That was to her. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I gotta give you one more Narnia quote, okay? Then we're done. 
in the last battle, the last book, the end of all things. The last paragraph is this. And as he spoke, this is Aslan, the great lion, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them down. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story, which no one on this earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray. Lord, we, all we can say in light of the resurrection and in light of what you're doing now and what you will do is what Jude said, to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time, now, and forever. And God's people said...